I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. And I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And this is World Footprints. Today we're talking about one of your favorite subjects, dear, history, and in particular, American history, a passion I know you shared with your dad. Yeah, I love history, and there's nothing like walking in history's footsteps. Philanthropist and Carlisle Group co-founder David Rubenstein shares his passion for American history in a new book, The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians. David shares how this book came to be and the important lessons it holds. There was a famous historian, George Santayana, also a philosopher at Harvard, who said, those people that don't remember history are condemned to relive it. So the point of history is to learn about the past, the good and the bad, hopefully build on the good, and to avoid the the bad things from the past. That very history we discuss with David also informs the state of our culture, too. And according to travel writer and journalist Jen Tausey, American culture, regardless of how you define it, is being transformed in ways we might not realize. I I do think that American culture on the whole, or um, a healthy sense of patriotic pride, is at risk. And uh, you don't have to look very far to find evidence of that. There's lots of statistics that back that up. Really provocative conversation with Jen that offers a lot to think about. Yes, we will have some very interesting conversations as we travel through history. So let's get started. This is World Footprints with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Imagine a U.S. senator or representative being invited to a bipartisan dinner with a leading contemporary historian to discuss a founding father or significant American historical figure, free from politics and away from the media. David Rubenstein, philanthropist, Carlisle Group co-founder, and host of the show that bears his name on Bloomberg TV, had such an idea in 2013. Those conversations, known as Congressional Dialogues, became the foundation for David's new book, The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians. What is the Cliff Note version of our American story? Notes version is this. I thought it would be a good idea to educate members of Congress, the people that make our laws, about our history, because many people in our country don't know as much about American history as they should, and nobody should know as much about American history as our members of Congress because they are passing our laws. So I started a program six years ago with the help of the Library of Congress, where at once a month I interview a great American historian at a dinner I host with the Library of Congress, uh, and the interview is about the person's uh, well-known books, so Doris Kearns Goodwin, for example, on Team of Rivals, or David McCullough on his book on John Adams, or Scott Berg's book on Lindbergh. And the interview is designed to educate members of Congress, but also to bring them together. So I asked Democrats and Republicans to sit together and to kind of break bread together and to not have the kind of partisan fights that we often see. And that's worked out quite well. Members of Congress come. We get about 250 to 300 members of Congress and their guests coming every time we do it. We did one this week with David Blight, who wrote a wonderful book on uh, Frederick Douglass. And I've taken some of the books that have been done over the last uh, couple years and put them into this book. Um, and I included as well an interview that I did with, uh, in front of members of Congress with the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts. Yeah, we saw that as lawyers, too. We appreciate that. Um, 
so the series that you've been doing, these dinners you've been hosting, they're called the Congressional Dialogue Series. And I take it those who have been very well received by members of Congress and uh, others. Is that open to the public as well? It is not open to the public. Uh, I think if it was open to the public, it'd be harder for the Democrats and Republicans to sit next to each other. <laughs> and so it's really um, uh, open to the public only by reading this book, probably, in that sense. But uh, I don't have any press covering it. I don't want any press there because I want members to feel that they're not on display and it makes it easier. Um, on John Roberts, I added him because I want members of Congress to know how the Supreme Court operates. And as you say, uh, lawyers probably know a little bit of how the Supreme Court operates, but not all members of Congress are lawyers. And so I asked John Roberts at the beginning, did you always want to be Chief Justice of the United States? And he said, no, I didn't. Uh, he said he didn't even want to be a lawyer. And he wanted to be a historian. And uh, his father said there's no money in being a historian, but John just persisted and, and went to Harvard, majored in history, came back from spring break, um, landed at Logan Airport in Boston, got in a cab, said that a cab driver would take me to Harvard. The cab driver said, are you a uh, student at Harvard? Yes, I am. What are you majoring in? I'm majoring in history. Cab driver said, well, when I was a student at Harvard, that's what I majored in also. And that made John Roberts think maybe he should listen to his father and get a profession. He went to law school. Oh, bless. Now, David, is there an American historical figure that is a favorite of yours, and could you tell us why? Well, um, Abraham Lincoln was our greatest president, without doubt. He held the Union together. I think most people who were elected president at that time would have said to the South, you want to go away, you want to have your slaves, uh, I'm, we're not going to fight a civil war over it. But Lincoln persisted in keeping the country together. He thought that was his obligation. So I think uh, he was my favorite president. He's the person I think did the most to keep this country together and really keep it uh, uh, help build it to what it is today. And, of course, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation and supported the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. After him, I think George Washington, he was the person who set the tone for the presidency. He was the person who made sure it wasn't a uh, hereditary position. He was the person who made certain that presidents couldn't stay forever. And so he was probably my second uh, most favorite president. And when I was a young boy, I was inspired by the inaugural address of John Kennedy, the famous 14-minute address where he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And that really inspired me and many people in my generation to go into public service. And so those are three presidents I very much admire. Now, in terms of the historical figures featured in your book, were there some things that came as a surprise to you about, um, about, about the figures featured that stand out in your mind today? Well, sure. Um, let me mention just uh, two. Um, Charles Lindbergh was the most famous man in the history of the world. When he landed in Le Bourget, the entire world knew about it because the world was linked electronically for the first time. And so he became so famous that he really um, it, it dwarfed any other person in the history of our country then or since. In terms of fame, he couldn't escape the fame easily. He had to move to Europe for a while. And he ultimately died at the age of 72, buried in Maui, Hawaii. And his family ultimately gave all the papers of the family to Scott Berg to do a, a biography of, of Charles Lindbergh, and it's a biography that won the Pulitzer Prize in 1999. It's an extraordinary work, 10 years of work, research and writing into this book. And then when it came out, Scott, uh, Scott Berg was told that he didn't really do a complete book. Somebody wrote him a letter and said, you should meet with me, I'll tell you something you don't know. He met with the person, and the person said, Charles Lindbergh fathered seven children out of wedlock with three German women. His family in the United States never knew about it. I'm one of those seven children. You should have written about us. Well, hmm. that was a bit of a surprise, right? <laughs> wow. um, Thomas Jefferson. 
Thomas Jefferson. He had a famous affair with Sally Hemings, denied for a long time by many people, but DNA evidence has made it 99.9% certain that, yes, he was the father of six children with Sally Hemings, a slave who he first met when she was 16 years old, when she delivered to France one of the daughters of Thomas Jefferson. And why did he fall in love with her, or why did he have this kind of relationship, whatever you might want to describe it? Was it consensual? Was it not? We'll never know. He never wrote about her. She was not literate. She never wrote anything, so we don't really know. But one thing we do know is this. She was three-quarters white, and so her father was uh, a slave owner who impregnated a slave, and the result was Sally Hemings. But that man who impregnated a slave and produced Sally Hemings also was the man who fathered Thomas Jefferson's wife. So when Thomas Jefferson saw the 16-year-old woman, three-quarters white, he was seeing somebody that looked like his wife, no doubt, and he probably mm-hmm. fell in love with the image of his wife again, and, and maybe that was the reason he had this, this long-term relationship with her. We'll never really know. Goodness gracious. So uh, as an aside, um, we're, we will actually be interviewing uh, Charles Lindbergh's niece in the uh, coming months uh, about the, the gift uh, his wife, Anne, wrote Gift from the Sea. So um, I'm, I just wanted to make that reference. And, uh, and I'm also, I have also have a graduate degree from the London School of Economics in international history. So I, too, am a history buff. Um, and I find well, uh, Anne Morrow Lindbergh was the daughter of the ambassador to Mexico from the United States. He had been, uh, I think, the head of J.P. Morgan. And, and Charles Lindbergh met her when he was visiting the ambassador. And they married for a long time, um, had, uh, I think, five children, one of whom obviously was tragically killed. But um, um, she was a quite a gifted writer, and many would say a much, much better writer than her husband. Mm-hmm. Well, her, her book is definitely uh, the gift that keeps giving. So, there, you know, there's so many um, places around this country that remind us of our history and connect us to our history. Where do you go to feel connected to our history or where... You know, history speaks to you. Well, I live in Washington, D.C., so I see the historic buildings all the time. I am very involved in the Library of Congress. I chair its support arm and, and very involved there. And I've been the chairman of the Smithsonian for a number of years, and I'm the chairman of the Kennedy Center. So these are historic buildings to me. But obviously, I drive by the White House every day, drive by the Washington Monument, Jefferson Memorial, Lincoln Memorial, all of which are organ- uh, buildings I've tried to help fix up in some way or another. So. So one of those places are pretty good inspiration for me. Any of those places are good inspiration for me. Mm-hmm. Now, history is also meant to teach us lessons from the past. We, we know uh, the phrase that, you know, um, lessons from the past, if we don't know them, are, uh, we're condemned right. to repeat them. So do, what do you think is the greatest lesson that history has taught us? And what do you think we are in jeopardy of repeating? I think the greatest lesson that history has taught us is that humans haven't changed all that much over the past thousands of years. They still have the same ambitions and weaknesses and, and strengths that we had thousands of years ago. And so if you learn about people 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, you're probably going to learn a lot about human nature today as well. And as you were just saying in that quote, um, there was a famous historian, George Santiano, also a philosopher at Harvard, who said, those people that don't remember history are condemned to relive it. So the point of history is to learn about the past, the good and the bad, hopefully build on the good, and to avoid the, the bad things from the past. Now, 
The book came about as a result of this congressional dialogue series, which was really to inform congressional members. So for the reader of this book, what would you like to see them gain from this book? Well, I would like to see them read it. Um, all the proceeds go to the literacy fund of the Library of Congress, so it's, a, it's not designed to make money for me or anybody. It's really designed to make money for uh, the literacy fund. I'd like them to uh, appreciate history a little bit more, but also read the books themselves. In other words, my book is an appetizer. If you like any of the interviews, go read the author's entire book. Now, the, many of these books are six, 700 pages, and many people may not have the discipline, the desire, whatever it might take, uh, or the time to go read these books. So I'm giving people a little bit of an appetizer, a little bit of a flavor, but I'm hoping that somebody will, uh, and all people will ultimately want to take one or two or three or more of these books and make it part of their library and read those entire books. Do you think we might see a volume two of the American story since you're still doing these congressional yeah. dialogues? Okay. I'm Good. hopeful that that will be the case. I, I have another book coming out in September on my TV interviews, which are called Peer to Peer, and it's about leadership, what great leaders around the world have said made them great leaders and what they, they learned from leadership. But then I hope next year to do one on history again. Yes. Great. Well, David, we, we would love to have you back on our show again to talk about travel um, and how that okay. also transforms your life. But uh, certainly, um, I can talk history um, until, you know, the cows come home. But thank you so okay. much for, for spending this time right, with thank us. Thank you for that. To learn more about The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians by David Rubenstein, click on the link on this show page at worldfootprints.com. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper, explore and keep meaningful conversations going by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com. And make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers. Patriotism, national pride, what are the feelings that those words raise? Blogger Jen Towsey of thisfamilyblog.com says that those words no longer reflect the deep love we have for our country. Instead, those words have become politicized to a degree that they may be putting the survival of American culture at risk. But what is American culture? Jen says that we can find the answer to that question by traveling. And by traveling, we can foster a greater appreciation and love for our country and our collective history, and thereby preserve the American experience for future generations. Jen, you answered a query I put out about cultural traditions that are at risk. And your answer to me really surprised me because you said that American culture is at risk. What do you mean exactly by that? <laughs> you know, I, I debated before I answered that query because I, I wasn't, it's something that has come to my attention in recent years and I just um, wasn't sure how it was going to be received. Um, 
But the older I get, the more I see that this is becoming a, a bigger issue. And it's, it's not um, an angry issue. Um, we have plenty of that in the political scheme of things. Um, and, but, I, but I do feel very strongly that it's something that we need to talk about. Um, I, I do think that American culture on the whole or um, a healthy sense of patriotic pride is at risk. And uh, you don't have to look very far to find evidence of that. There's lots of statistics that back that up. So that's kind of the short version of what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. Now, you have a blog called This Family Blog, and you mentioned that patriotism is often confused with political agendas and that it's challenging to raise a family that understands its history. What do you mean by this? Yeah, well, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, I do think that uh, words like nationalism and patriotism are being used incorrectly. And I think uh, some, some factions out there that happen to have really loud voices um, are, are, taking, uh, are using those words and turning them into something different. They're appropriating them, I guess, and uh, using them for political agenda and oftentimes angry agenda. Because when I say nationalism, even me, the first thing that comes to my mind is white nationalism. And that's not what nationalism is. It's not a, a hatred thing. Um, it's, it's about a healthy pride and devotion to your, your country, your homeland. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that in this modern age, trying to raise a family, uh, as we all are, it, it is a difficult thing to navigate. And it's something very necessary that we, again, need to start discussing um, because we all want a good, positive future for our children and our children's children, don't we? And and you say that, you know, a lot of experiencing our patriotism is um, through experiencing American history. How does one go about doing that? Are you just speaking in terms of traveling to historical sites? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, no, I wouldn't just limit it to going to historical sites. I think that we can look at that in, in more broader terms. Um, experiencing American history, sure, can absolutely be going to the Lincoln Memorial, tour the White House, things like that. But it can also be um, finding a local um, historical dance community because they put on these incredible balls where you can go learn how to dance from the Victorian era and get dressed up in the same way and, you know, learn etiquette and eat Victorian food. And then it becomes a memory, right? Like you're, you're, uh, you're having fun, you're learning inadvertently, which is the best way to learn. And uh, you're having a really good time with other people who care. So that's what I mean more by experiences. And where where can one find like those those dance classes? I've not seen in Washington D.C. I've not seen anything um, like that offered. But maybe I'm not looking in the right places. Well, I think these are all right now. These are all very small communities, but they do exist, and um, and they they should be brought out more into the mainstream. And that's kind of 
one of the, the aims of the blog is to just throw out all these creative different ways that you can experience American history. So um, I do have some links up there uh, for exactly that, the historical dancing. And I can tell you that at Gadsby's Tavern, which is, I think, probably about a half an hour from where you are in Alexandria, they do a monthly get together with just that in, in uh, Colo- but it's not Victorian, it's colonial. Ah. Yeah, so that's super fun. Um, but, you know, like, there, it's more than just that. You know, you can go to a cowboy cookout. You can, um, oh, gosh, the list goes on. I, I, that, I'll take up all our interview time if I start doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of links can be found on your website. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Jen, yeah. history kind of takes a uh, knock from from folks. Uh, not everyone enjoys learning about it. I guess it has more to do with the way that we teach history than anything else. So how can historical travel be meaningful to someone who doesn't necessarily have a liking for history or doesn't seem to care about history in general? Yeah, I think when we start categorizing it by we're going to go on a historical whatever I, I think you get a lot of eye rolling because when you hear the word history you start thinking um glasses in a dark library with lots of books and <laughs> that's not everyone's cup of tea but i i do think um that being a little creative and working with modern sensibilities there are a lot of different ways to go out and experience it. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. We, we teach history kind of from a book and I can remember even being in grade school and really not liking my history class because we had to memorize a lot of dates and names and, you know, everybody has the same name once you get past a certain point in time and, or very similar names and it's really difficult. But when you go out and actively walk a battlefield, um, like I recently took our family uh, to a Civil War battlefield, and we it was a battlefield trail outside of Fredericksburg, Virginia, and you walked on the side of the field that the north came up, and then you kind of went to the edge of the battlefield, and the trail took you up onto the hillside, so then the second half of the trail was where the Confederates were and they had a couple of cannons set up and whatnot. And then the graveyard was back there. And so you, you got to see the, you could picture it in your head and you've seen it from both vantage points and, and how uh, destructive and truly startling it it really was. Um, That's meaningful. And I have to say that when we had conversations in the car, both my daughters start asking questions like, did we have somebody in the war, in the Civil War? What side did they fight on? Did they fight at this battlefield? And that's where it becomes meaningful. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to be, I got to go teach a historical lesson to my kids right now. But if you can tie it into your family, then it becomes personally meaningful. And I, I think that's uh, an important thing, personally meaningful. Uh, Tanya and I have traveled to Gettysburg and we've noticed that there's an absence of African-Americans and people of color there. But if you go north of Gettysburg, you'll learn about uh, a community where many African-Americans lived. And so how do you think we can go about telling 
American stories that make everyone feel as if uh, there's something there that all of us can learn from, even if it's uh, some of the darker history in our country. Right. It's a really, really smart question and, and probably the question that has to be at the center of all these discussions, really, um, even coming full circle to why, you know, how is our, how is our culture eroding? The fact is, from the very beginning of this country, we've been a mixed nation. Even before uh, anybody came from any other continent, we had over 500 nations already living here. So that means we had different languages, we had different customs, we had different cultures. So how do you put it all together into a shared culture that means something for everybody? Um, I sit on a, on a board right now where I'm actually working with some of these museums uh, that, that specialize in history and preserving the history. And it's a big topic of discussion of how do we make it more meaningful for everybody and more inclusive? Because the reality is we've always had people of color here. We've always, even before the white people got here, you know, we, we have all kinds of different ethnicities and and religions from the very beginning and it's just that certain stories haven't been told so i i do feel that it's all of our responsibility to work together to build our story a, a more complete story right yes uh, yeah a more complete story that's that's the best way to put it so um i think when you say, how do we do that? It's got to start with talking. Um, just like when you have a, a family issue at home, um, where do you do? You start talking about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Jen, in, in the last 30 seconds that we have left, what is one of your favorite historical travel experiences with your family? Oh gosh, I have so many. Um, you know, I... I really am a big fan of Mount Vernon, um, which is the home of George Washington. It's someplace that has been meaningful to me from the very beginning of my life um, for many different reasons. I feel like it's a real window into our past, and I, and I do agree with the ladies who decided to save that from certain destruction, you know, 150 years ago, that it is a place that every American should see. Um, is there dark history on that property? Absolutely. But is it part of our story? It sure is. And we do need to talk about that and learn it so that we have an appreciation of how far we've come and also how far we have to go. To learn more about Americana and Jen's family travels, visit thisfamilyblog.com or follow the link on the show page at worldfootprints.com. You know, when I first moved to Washington, D.C. and walked through the halls of Congress, uh, because at that time I was looking for a job on the Hill, I was so excited because I knew that I was walking in the footsteps of history through those marble corridors. And history is something I've always been passionate about, uh, in large part, thanks to my father. And in fact, when I lived in England, 
I studied contemporary history, which included not only world history, but American history. And so I'm really happy in some ways to bring my historical experiences full circle with these two interviews. These two interviews really helped to shed light on this question as I kind of think about history informing our culture. And in dealing with culture, we often deal with it from uh, the dominant perspective or who's the winner and who gets to write the history. And when we think about some of the topics that came up today, particularly with respect to what Jen was speaking about, uh, American culture being at risk. It's what American culture? How do we define that American culture? Is it culture for whom? Is it a shared culture? Or is it a culture that we look at through our own individual and sometimes collective experience? And so it's interesting how that's dealt with. I think for some people, uh, people who have been left out of the American story in many ways, it might be hard to see preserving American culture as being a great loss. But this show started the conversation that hopefully we will continue and reflect upon. Well, I think, as Jen has said in many of her articles and certainly uh, in our conversations, that this is a shared culture and American culture is made up of so many other cultures. We're, you know, we're a melting pot of, uh, of, of other cultures. And, you know, we've kind of formed our own unique identity uh, through the melding of all of, the other, um, all of these other cultures. But I think the concern is that uh, because of the national conversation and maybe the perception of this country and the world, we are becoming more and more divided. And the pride that people had in this country reflected in, you know, flying the American flag or holding the American flag is no longer reflected. And so that was why she wanted to share her message and her travel experiences with our audience. And the interview with David Rubenstein uh, and the discussion about his new book had a very eclectic list of historical figures. And as we close, I want to leave you with the words of one of those historical figures that is included in his book, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We are not makers of history. We are made by history. Ooh, those are powerful words. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are honored that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you for spending this time and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Pandora, Alexa, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Public Radio Exchange, and many more. Connect with the world with a deeper understanding through powerful stories. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and compelling articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter and receive a free gift. 
World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast and website are those of the guests and authors and are not necessarily endorsed by World Footprints LLC.